Blog Talk Radio. From Live in the Balance, the nonprofit organization committed to advocating on behalf of behaviorally challenging kids and their caregivers, this is Dr. Ross Green. Welcome to Collaborative Problem Solving at School. I'm delighted that you were able to join in. This program airs live each Monday at 3.30 p.m. Eastern Time during the school year. We explore a variety of topics aimed at helping you better understand and help challenging students and implement the collaborative problem-solving approach in your classroom and your school. If you have a question or comment, call 646-727-2691. If you call in, you'll be muted until I bring you on the air. And now, let's talk about challenging kids and how we can help them. Hey there, welcome to today's program, Um, Collaborative Problem Solving at School. Glad to have you with me. And um, let me give you those call-in numbers again. We have uh, that call-in number again. We have open phones today, so that's pretty cool. I do have a bunch of email to respond to, but as always, callers take priority on this program. The call-in number is 646 727-2691, and um, do join in. Got a question about a student in your school or uh, using the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems in your building or doing Plan B with a particular student? Call in, 646-727-2691. can tell you some of the stuff that's been going on with some of the schools that I'm working with. Uh, a discussion that came up recently. Um, you know, there's different phases to implementing collaborative problem solving in a building. I generally recommend against uh, trying to implement collaborative problem solving building wide in the beginnings. Just too big, too 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 much. Better to create a core group. Uh, a CPS team, eight, nine people, leaders included, who are going to organize the effort and lead the charge early on, and who are going to meet reliably. Um, and who are going to get good at using the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems first. That's sort of step number two, creating a core group that's going to meet reliably, step number one. Step number two, uh, getting good at the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems. Step number three, getting good at plan B, the core group getting good at plan B. I was in a school recently where um, people were getting a little bit freaked out about the responses of other people in the building to collaborative problem solving. People who weren't part of the core group yet, people who weren't doing plan B yet. And my advice to them was, you're not there yet. We've got to get y'all good at the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems first. Then we'll worry about the rest of your building. We've got to get y'all good at plan B first so that you can serve as mentors to other people who are going to be doing plan B with you coaching them along. Let's not worry so much early on about how people are reacting to 
collaborative problem solving and plan B when they really don't know much about it yet. We're going to get the core group good at it first. Then we're going to start worrying about everybody else. But we're going to start worrying about everybody else when we have eight or nine people in the building who are already good at the ALSIP, who are already good at Plan B. Then we're going to roll it out. That's that's the fourth step, rolling it out for everybody. And coinciding with that, I would call the fifth fifth. The administrators in the building starting to let people know that if they send kids to the office, traditional discipline is not what they are likely to get. What they're likely to get is the empathy step of plan B, which is, quite frankly, as far as the principal or assistant principal or school disciplinarian can go if they're doing plan B, because the person who's having the trouble with the kid, the classroom teacher who sent him down to the office, isn't there to do the define the problem step. So the furthest the administrator or disciplinarian can go is the empathy step of plan B. And then it's time to send the classroom teacher who sent the kid down to the building, down to the office, time to send them an email saying, well, I learned quite a bit about Bobby's concerns on this issue that you sent him down to the office for, but... um, I really couldn't go any further than that. Uh, How about me, you, and Bobby get together so that we can get this problem solved? Because I can't do it without you. Um, When that coincides with people in the building getting good at Plan B, well, they stop sending kids to the office because, number one, They're solving the problems with the kid. And number two, they know that if they send their plan A to the office, the school disciplinarian is going to do plan B and send an email back. Uh, Let's not worry about the rest of the building until we're ready to spread it through the rest of the building. Always tricky to do plan B on the heels of someone else's plan A. That's very hard to do. Why does collaborative problem solving reduce discipline referrals? Because we're getting everybody good at plan B in the building, slowly but surely. And because when kids do get sent down to the office, they get the empathy step of plan B, and then an email saying, let's get together and solve this problem. First of all, people stop sending the kid to the office if all he's going to get there is plan B. And secondly, if you're doing plan B, the problems that are causing the kid to get sent down to the office are getting solved. And now there's nothing to send them to the office about. Told you this was logical hard. That's the problem. It's logical, but it's hard. I know. Want to hear an email? I like this one. I like them all, but I like this one a lot. Uh, It's from a parent, actually, but it's sort of related to school, so I'm going to read it. 
Hello, Dr. Green. I want to share a success. We're going to start today's program with a success. Our six-year-old son was distraught after school last Friday. I'm working out of town, and my wife called me to say she wanted to speak with me because, uh, say that my son wanted to speak with me because he had a rough day at school. I'm pleased to say that my son and I talked for almost 30 minutes. In the empathy step, I learned that my son was upset for several reasons. One, a little girl had said she would help him with an assignment and then didn't help him, but did help another little boy. Two, the same little boy had moved over to my son's desk and chair when my son left the room temporarily. And three, when my son expressed his discontent with the behavior of the other children, he ended up having his name written on the board with five check marks and lots of verbal threats from the substitute teacher. So I repeated back his concerns, suggested some labels for the emotions he had felt, and received his confirmation that I clearly understood his perspective. That in itself was very rewarding for both my son and me. I'm going to stop reading for a second. You can say that again. All right, I'm back to the email. Uh, I think I'm a little bit more editorial comment. Yeah, feeling understood is rewarding for the kid. Feels good. Um, might even feel better than any of those extrinsic rewards we might have been considering. But guess who else feels good in the empathy step of Plan B? This is not a point I have emphasized very much, but guess who else feels good in the empathy step of Plan B? The person doing Plan B with the kid. Boy, does it feel good to understand what your kid is thinking. Ah, there aren't many better feelings than that. Not for the kid. Not for you. Uh, if he feels understood, and if you're, he's feeling good, and if you're feeling good because you understand, and you've done a good job of getting that information, well, now there's a kid who's going to keep talking to you. Back to the email. Then I started giving my son examples of the many times in my life other people had not done what they told me they were going to do and how it hurt my feelings and made me feel angry, frustrated, and jealous. I told my son that I had to learn how to adapt. My son said, Dad, wait, what does adapt mean? I explained that sometimes the first way we look at things is not always correct and that sometimes if we can stop and look at the situation differently, we can feel differently, and I gave some examples from my experiences. I then invited my son to think of some ways he could look at his situation differently. He said, well, what difference does it make? It's already happened the way it happened. So I explained that he would face similar situations many times in his life and that perhaps he could think of ways to see those situations differently and not feel so upset. So he was quiet for a while, then burst out enthusiastically talking about some scenarios that could go badly if he thought one way, but how much better they would go if he thought about them this other way. For example, instead of thinking the little boy is a jerk because he sat in my son's chair without asking, he could, he could consider that maybe the little boy likes my son and just wants to be closer to my son. Instead of thinking the little girl was a jerk for not helping my son after she said she would, he could consider that maybe she is just so nice that she tries to help everybody and doesn't have time to help everybody that she wants to help. My son figured out that those thoughts might make him feel a lot better than his initial impressions. The really cool thing about all this is that it seems to have had quite an impact on my son's thinking. He is now reframing many situations and trying to see them in ways that make him feel better. He's even teaching his mom how to do it when she sees that she is getting upset about something. 
Needless to say, we're all thrilled and much more optimistic than we have been for quite some time. I had an epiphany that I wanted to share. Asking children to behave differently without first understanding their perspective or concern is the same as asking them to deny their feelings and gut instincts to swallow their emotions. In my opinion, such a request is not only unreasonable, it's unhealthy. Thank you. Your insight and teaching has truly been a miracle and a blessing for us. No, thank you for writing in. And um, what a nice story. How we see things does have a great deal to do with how we respond to them. Good lesson for your son to learn, and he's only six. A lot of people think six-year-olds can't do what you just did, but he can. Now, here's all I would say, and you're not saying anything differently here. Yes, very important for your son to consider other possible explanations for what was going on. And I, I love the alternative explanations you gave. Spot on. Here's all I would say, though. He did have legitimate concerns, so if these scenarios continued, we wouldn't always want him transforming his concerns into seeing things a different way. That, that would be a very good thing for him to know how to do. But if the situations continue, then we'd want him to express his concerns take another person's concerns into account and come up with a mutually satisfactory solution. Plan B. But what you're telling us is that just doing the empathy step of plan B took you miles. Nothing like hearing what a kid's concern or perspective is took you miles. I like it a lot better than sermonizing when we have absolutely no idea what his concern or perspective is, then we're sort of sermonizing blindly. Maybe the blind leading the blind. Never loved that expression, but you get the idea. Thank you very much for your email. Let's move on to another one. Uh, Dr. Ian, I have a question for you. I teach in a public middle school. What would you suggest if a student does explode in the classroom? I agree that timeouts do not work. I have a student who threw chairs across the room because he got a bad grade. It wasn't a reaction that we had seen from him before. Does there need to be a consequence? Luckily, the chairs didn't hit anyone, but it did scare the other students pretty badly. Thanks for your help. Well... I hope my response is helpful. Uh, all right, so here's what you're describing. You're describing a scenario as having been unpredictable. And I believe you. Most aren't unpredictable. Most are predictable. So one thing I would ask myself is, aside from the chair throwing, which sounds like a specific behavior... Could we have anticipated that this student, given his profile of lagging skills, 
could we have anticipated that this student might have reacted badly to a bad grade? If so, then it wasn't so unpredictable, even if throwing chairs is not something that we expected him to do. Reacting badly is something we expected him to do. But now, just for the sake of argument, let's say that this came as a total shock. I'm betting that it didn't come as a total shock, but let's say that it did. It's now in the 0.1% of scenarios that occurred without any advance warning whatsoever. Because as I'm fond of saying, uh, challenging episodes, unsolved problems are 99.9% predictable. Let's say this was one of the 0.1%. Well, now, now we are stuck in an emergent situation and we have three options, emergency A, emergency B, and emergency C, because we're in the heat of the moment. So proactive is not an option now. Emergent is. And, um, well, at the very least, in the case of a kid throwing chairs across the room, number one, I'm glad nobody got hurt. Um, and, yes, I can understand everybody getting scared. And... Um, well, no one really has great advice for what to do in the heat of the moment besides this. And mine's no better than anybody else's. Defuse, de-escalate, keep everybody safe. That's what you do in the heat of the moment. Emergency plan A, use it with caution because plan A often throws fuel on the fire. Emergency plan A can take a kid from throwing chairs to something worse unless the throwing chairs was something worse. I don't know. Maybe the throwing chairs came after his initial response to getting the bad grade, and I'm just guessing here. I could be completely wrong. And uh, people did plan A with him on his initial response, and throwing chairs came after that. There's worse than throwing chairs, defuse, de-escalate, keep everybody safe. I'm not a huge fan of plan A in emergent situations unless we really have no other option. And we have two other options, and they are frequently more viable and preferable to plan A. Plan C, I don't know how you do plan C in that circumstance. He got the grade. He got the grade that he got. There's there's no dropping the grade, although you could fudge. Hey, maybe I made a mistake. Let, maybe we should check and see how you got that grade. Let's see. Maybe I screwed up. That's as close to plan C as I can come on that. Emergency plan B. What's going on? I got it bad grade you got a bad grade that's very upsetting for you yes it's very upsetting for me do you want to talk about it now or you want to talk about it later that's sort of what emergency plan B sounds like now you got a bunch of other kids in there I know this because they got scared by him throwing chairs the big question is whether there was any way, and this is always easy in hindsight, but 
truth is we can plan for this stuff so that we're not thinking about it in hindsight, but this is in hindsight. Um, could this have looked differently? Either by us having been proactive or, and I'm, I have no idea if this was possibility, was there any way if we could not have been proactive, now I'm talking once again about the 0.1%, if we couldn't have been proactive, what could we have done in the heat of the moment so that it didn't come to throwing chairs? Just, just sort of debriefing time here. Is there anything we could have done differently? Maybe the answer is yes, maybe the answer is no. Now, the big question. So that's, that's it. Nobody has better advice for the heat of the moment beyond defuse, de-escalate, keep everybody safe. I'm glad everybody stayed safe. You'd be the better judge of the degree to which the defusing and de-escalating you did could have come sooner, worked. Maybe he could have done worse than chair throwing. I don't have those details. But now to your question, does there need to be a consequence? And by that I'm assuming you mean adult-imposed consequence because there have already been consequences, those of the natural variety, which are very potent and very powerful and very persuasive. His classmates are scared of him. That's a natural consequence, and frequently not a positive one. Maybe they're shying away from him. Maybe they are avoiding him. That's for a natural consequence of throwing chairs in the classroom, and it's a powerful one. Maybe he's embarrassed. I mean, I don't know this student. I don't know what his reaction is to having thrown chairs in the classroom, but my sense is that most of them aren't positive I can see how by some ways of thinking we could twist that situation into believing that there are positives for that student, like he's enjoying having people being scared of him. But I don't know. This sounds like kind of a heat-of-the-moment response on the part of this student. And Well, I don't think that's probably what he was about. So I suppose we could twist it into thinking it was positive... Suppose we could twist it into thinking that behavior was working for the student in some narrow, limited way. But I think in the vast majority of ways, when we take the 10,000-foot view on that kind of thing, it becomes crystal clear that the behavior is primarily not working. Do we need adult-imposed consequences? Let me think about this further. What I would recommend that you do is proactive plan B. In proactive plan B, in the define the problem step, you are making it crystal clear to the student that that behavior is undesirable, that you have concerns about him responding and getting a bad grade in that way. And so if you're thinking that an adult-imposed consequence would be useful for purposes of helping him know that you don't approve of his behavior, well, you're going to accomplish that mission in the define the problem step of plan B, so you don't need an adult-imposed consequence for that. Maybe you're thinking you need an adult-imposed consequence to let the other students know you take this student's behavior seriously. Oh? Well, if you take this student's behavior seriously and you want to make 
sure that you do everything you can to make sure it doesn't happen again. Well, I don't know if adult-imposed consequences are going to accomplish that mission. I think proactive Plan B would. Because you got information to gather in the empathy step of Plan B. What was going on here? An adult-imposed consequence isn't going to tell you what's going on here. And you're going to get this problem solved once you know enough about it to actually work with the student to solve it. I don't know what was going on. Maybe... He was told that if he got another bad grade, he'd be grounded for a month. I'd want to know. I don't. I don't know that when an adult is doing an adult an, an adult imposed consequence. I don't know what's going on. Adult imposed consequences are what I call uninformed solutions. Uninformed by everything we need to know about why this student reacted to a bad grade the way he did. Maybe there are other things going on in his life, and the bad grade was the straw that broke the camel's back. I don't know. I want to know. I'm not going to find out with plan A. I'm only going to find out in the empathy step of plan B. I don't know if you need an adult input. Well, I can... So are the other students going to know you take this seriously? Sure, if you solve the problem that caused him to react the way he does so he doesn't react that way anymore, my goodness, you have credibility. There's credibility for you. You don't need to prove anything. You need to solve the problem so that throwing chairs doesn't happen again. Mm, any other reasons I'd want to use an adult-imposed consequence? Maybe because we want to let the student know that that was unacceptable behavior. Did that already. Define the problem step of plan B. Maybe because we want to let the parents of those students know, the parents who contacted the school to ask what the heck was going on with a student throwing chairs in the classroom, maybe we want to let them know that we're on it. Oh, plan A, adult-imposed consequences, isn't the only way to let parents know you're on it. Truth is, you're not going to have a whole lot of credibility with parents if you tell them you're on it and you have adult-imposed consequence, this kid, and then it happens again. That's not credibility. Thank you for your email. Brought up a few interesting questions, didn't it? Thank you. Want that call-in number again? We never get callers on this program, but I'm going to give it to you again anyways. 646-727-2691. I have a feeling it's because, well, people have told me. It's because, uh, well, because it starts at 3.30 p.m. Eastern Time, and most people in the Eastern Time Zone here in North America are still busy at 3.30 p.m. Eastern Time on a school day. And people in the um, central time zone, a lot of them aren't even out of school yet, and people in the mountain time zone aren't out of school yet, and people in California are just eating lunch. That's all right. Tons of people listen to this program in the recorded version. Ready for another uh, email? Hold on, let me get to that. Uh, here's an email. I strongly believe that parent involvement, including collaboration and decision-making with staff, 
is essential for a successful school environment. Just a statement. I agree. I think that's the sixth fifth. Yeah. Now now we're we got a sixth fifth, don't we? First fifth, creating a core group CPS team that meets reliably. Second, fifth, getting good at the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems. Third, fifth, getting good at plan B in the core group. Fourth, fifth, getting everybody in the building good at plan B. Fifth, fifth, making the changes in how we do discipline in our building so that the disciplinarian is facilitating plan B rather than still the conduit for plan A and all problem solving in the building. And the sixth, fifth, getting parents involved. I was asked this question in a school that I was visiting in northern Maine on Friday. Uh, what if we can't... But what do we do with the parents? We um, tell them what we're doing. We tell them as much as we can about Plan B. We tell them about the successes we're having with Plan B. We invite them to come in to see Plan B going on in our building, in our classroom. We invite them to sit down and do Plan B with their child here at school. It's the 6th, 5th. That's pretty catchy. Of course, I could divide it into six, couldn't I? Here's another. Oh, um, do we only want them seeing us doing Plan B with their child? Or do we want to do Plan B with them, too? As I've said frequently... Whenever I've been asked to enter into adversarial interactions between schools and parents, it's almost always because, while they never even thought about getting on the same page in terms of what's going on with a kid, lagging skills, unsolved problems, with the ALSIP as the discussion guide, that really is where you start. Because if you don't get on the same page about lagging skills and unsolved problems, then you're going to jump to solutions prematurely. And now people are getting ticked off at each other. Because, well, now we're duking it out over solutions without really having laid the groundwork for what it is that we're talking about in the first place. No, the way you get on the same page is lagging skills and unsolved problems, and so you're going to want to involve parents in the process of identifying a student's lagging skills and unsolved problems from the get-go so we can make sure that we're on the same page before we start thinking about solutions. Let's see if we have time for two more here. Uh, we are a school for children, K-12, through who are not able to function in a resource room at their home school. Uh, 
we have implemented CPS within our alternative school program. We have about 35 to 40 students currently in this program. We provide the education along with therapy groups, individual therapy sessions, and case management services. We are struggling with using the CPS model because at any given point in time, we have two or three students from one class having problems, such as running out of the classroom, throwing things, running on the highway, cussing and yelling, etc. The question is, was this model designed to address this many severe behavioral children at one time? Yes. Most classrooms these days do have more than one behaviorally challenging student. We need an assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems, discussion uh, for each of them proactively. See, the way that you're reading, writing this message makes me think that we are predominantly doing Plan B emergently. Now, you got a project on your hands because this isn't even a regular ed classroom. This is an alternative school. And these are kids who are not able to function in a resource room at their home school. All right. You got your work cut out for you. Uh, you're going to need an assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems on each kid. You don't want to get stuck using Plan B predominantly emergently. Oof. That is the definition of chickens with their heads cut off. Pardon the imagery. No, and it's going to take a while to have those discussions. I would start, as I would in any building, with the students you are most concerned about so that you can get their lagging skills identified, get their unsolved problems identified, start doing plan B so that they aren't running out of the classroom, throwing things, running on the highway, cussing and yelling. You're going to get on top of this one or two kids at a time, and that may sound very slow to you. But um, not as slow as not doing it. Not doing it as slow as it gets. Uh, we got to get this show on the road. Alsip, on each of your frequent flyers, and I understand that you have a school filled with frequent flyers. All right, but even within your school of frequent flyers, you have your big time frequent flyers. We'll call them your Diamond Club frequent flyers. That's I'm a frequent flyer. I don't usually get past platinum status, but the next level above that, the next highest level, the highest level is diamond status. But, of course, I'm talking about airplane trips, and truth is I would feel any, I'd feel bad for anybody who's got diamond status. They're flying too much. I'm flying too much. But you've got frequent flyers in your building who are flying too much. They're flying out of your building. Let's do an assessment of lagging skills on each one of them. By the way, and this would be no different than implementing collaborative problem solving in a residential facility, in a prison. Same thing. You need an assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems on each kid. 
but for the next two months of this school year, I'd recommend you do it with your kids who you are most concerned about, the ones who are most disruptive, the ones whose behavior is most extreme. I understand that that's starting with the toughest kids, but I'm not sure there's a better place to start. I mean, I was thinking about this. Um, I listen to a lot of recordings of people doing Plan B, and some of them are with kids who are really tough to do Plan B with, and some of them are with kids who are really easy to do Plan B with, and there's really no reason. Well, you can practice on the easy ones. I've had people say to me they practiced on their significant other at home just to get a feel for it. Because starting Plan B with the toughest kids in the building, trial by fire. You can practice Plan B with whoever you want just to get the feel for it. But the place we usually start is with the kids who are uh, having the biggest trouble in the building. Your frequent flyers. Alsip on each. Let's get Plan B going with each. There's a good reason that restraints and seclusions and staff and kid injuries and recidivism have plummeted in the juvenile detention system in the state of Maine. There's a good reason for that. They're doing collaborative problem solving, and they're doing the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems and Plan B, especially with their frequent flyers, kids who... And those are facilities that are filled with kids that blew out well... A lot of them are the ones who blew out of their alternative school programs. I'm being reminded by one of our listeners that we need to remember the philosophy that kids do well if they can. If a student could do well, he or she would do well. Your frequent flyers are lacking skills, and they are having demands being placed upon them that are outstripping the skills they have to respond adaptively to those demands. Sometimes got to take a look at the demands, too. All right, I think we have time for one more email. We have about six minutes left in the program. Let's go with this one. We are reading Loss at School and working on collaborative problem solving as a PLC in our district. In discussion, we were wondering if you have found it difficult and what to do with students who have social perception difficulties or low cognitive abilities and processing difficulties. Yes, I have found that it uh, is hard to do Plan B with all kinds of kids. And um, for all kinds of different reasons, low cognitive abilities, um, those kids may not have the perfect sense of what it is that we're even trying to do here, and yet they often will participate, and in participating, they do get a sense for what it is that we are trying to do here with Plan B. Kids who are lacking the language processing and communication skills to participate in Plan B, uh, that's hard very hard. Sometimes we use pictures to communicate with those kids. Sometimes those kids, while they do have language processing difficulties, 
are able to participate in the linguistic, linguistic give and take of Plan B, even without us using pictures, but with us making some adjustments based on their communication skills and at what level they're at. Social perception difficulties? Let's think of what some of those might be. Difficulty appreciating the impact of their behavior on other people. Well, they're going to be able to take into account the impact of their behavior on other people when we tell them our concerns and they define the problem step of plan B. Difficulty appreciating how they're coming across. Define the problem step of plan B. That's where we'll be telling them about that. Difficulty taking another person's perspective. They'll hear about the other person's perspective and the define the problem step of plan B. Difficulty taking another person's perspective into account. They'll get a lot of practice at that in the invitation step of plan B. Empathy. Uh, well, I think they're going to understand how they're making other people feel in the define the problem step of plan B. Now, if they have other social perception difficulties, those are things that we could certainly work on in the context of plan B. That be a plan B would be a good way to at least introduce them to the fact that we've noticed that they are lacking a particular skill and that we'd very much like to help them with that. I've also rely very heavily on the work of Michelle Michelle Garcia Winner. She has brilliantly um delineated the various social cognitive skills that kids might be lacking and the various ways in which we could go about trying to help them with those lagging skills, socialthinking.com, brilliant. So, yeah, it's difficult to do Plan B with students who have social perception difficulties or low cognitive abilities or and processing difficulties, but... Um, First of all, the kids are going to get a lot of practice at some of those things just in the mere context of doing Plan B. And secondly, if I want to engage a student in the process of working on those things, I can't think of a better way to do it than Plan B. If Plan B isn't teaching the skill indirectly, then it's a very good way to engage students in the process of working on the skill more directly. Thank you for your email. We are uh, about out of time for today. Um, I should mention, there's no program next week, April 16th, and for a good reason, I promise. Uh, here in Massachusetts, we celebrate a holiday on, well, we're celebrating it this April 16th, uh, called Patriots Day. It's the day that's the running of the Boston Marathon. And um, 
it's a holiday here, and it's a holiday in other parts of New, of New England, as I understand it. And so no program on April 16th. We will have another open phone program um, on April 23rd, and then we'll have another session with Anytown High School on April 30th, and then at school on the first Monday of um, May, we'll have the educators panel. So there's your game plan. We do take the summer off on this program, but, uh, well, that's a little bit of a ways off. I do want to thank you for listening today. I hope you've found the information on today's program to be useful, and I look forward to being back again with you in another two weeks. Take care.